0: You are listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Monday, January 4th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News for their support we'd like to thank Hanson Brothers Enterprises since 1953 providing aggregates construction services equipment rentals ready mix concrete masonry and landscape products for public works commercial and residential projects located in Grass Valley and Colfax go hbe.com and ola tortilla Offering homemade, organic tortillas and tamales utilizing locally sourced ingredients. Serving Taco Tuesdays to go with vegetarian, grasshopper, or carnitas tacos, plus imported food products from Oaxaca, Mexico. Next to Food & Juice, Nevada City, olatortilla.com. And Weiss Landscaping, with over 75 years of generational experience in landscape architecture design and installation. Weiss Landscaping crews are experienced and provide accountability with warranties on craftsmanship, installations, and irrigation projects. GoWeissLandscaping.com Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, we have this week's water news with Steve Baker. NPR reports that former Walmart pharmacists say the company ignored red flags as opioid sales boomed. We bring you today's National Native News. Closing out today's newscast, Steve Baker shares a commentary from KVMR listener Warren George Weiss Jr. At 6.30, we bring you Disability Wrap. And at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather.
1: Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Speer. President Donald Trump is visiting Georgia in a push on behalf of two Senate Republicans facing runoff races there tomorrow. NPR's Sarah McCammon is near Atlanta. She says the president's visit comes after a controversial phone call Trump made over the weekend to Georgia's Secretary of State regarding election results.
2: President Trump is coming to Georgia under a cloud of scandal after that recording surfaced where he can be heard pressuring Georgia's Republican Secretary of State to find thousands of votes and overturn Biden's win here. Nonetheless, at least some Republicans are continuing to line up behind him. We've heard support today from Republican Senator David Perdue, one of the senators on the ballot in tomorrow's runoff, as well as from the state GOP chairman here in Georgia. They have both expressed anger at Secretary Raffensperger for recording the phone call, which is perfectly legal in Georgia.
1: NPR's Sarah McCammon, President-elect Joe Biden, meanwhile, also was in Georgia today, stomping on behalf of the Democratic challengers. A Wisconsin prosecutor says a hospital pharmacist accused of destroying about 500 doses of a COVID 19 vaccine says the pharmacist thinks the vaccine is unsafe. Chuck Kernbach of member station WUWM reports on a court hearing held today. Police say Steven Brandenburg twice deliberately left 57 vials of the Moderna brand vaccine outside required refrigeration at the Aurora Medical Center in Grafton, Wisconsin. Ozaukee County District Attorney Adam Garrell told an arraignment hearing that Brandenburg wanted the vaccine rendered inert. Because he'd formed this belief that they were unsafe, that the RNA uh, method of creating these medications rendered them unsafe. Garrell says there's probable cause to move ahead with a charge of attempted criminal damage to property, but he says the vials have to be tested before he can say the vaccine was destroyed or reduced in efficacy. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach in Milwaukee. More than 200 engineers and other workers have formed a union at Google. It's a notable breakthrough in labor organizing in Silicon Valley. NPR's Alina Selyuk has more.
3: 227 workers at half a dozen Google offices in the U.S. and Canada signed cards to form the Alphabet Workers Union for Google's parent company, Alphabet. Note that Google is among NPR's sponsors. The Alphabet Union is supported by the Communications Workers of America and plans to collect dues, but it represents a small fraction of Google's workforce and so does not qualify for conventional collective bargaining rights. Still, it's a major development in Google, where worker activism has grown a lot in recent years as employees have pushed for changes over issues including sexual harassment, diversity and equity, Google's work with the Pentagon, and its treatment of the company's massive contract workforce. Alina Salyuk, NPR News.
1: This is NPR. A newly elected Republican congresswoman from Colorado says she will carry a handgun on Capitol Hill. The Mountain West News Bureau's Nate Hedgie has the story.
3: Lauren Boebert, who represents Colorado's third congressional district, released a slickly produced video on Sunday. It shows the congresswoman walking down the streets of Washington, D.C. with a Glock handgun holstered around her waist.
2: It's our job in Congress to defend your rights, including your Second Amendment, and that's exactly what I'm here to do. A
3: 1967 rule exempts members of Congress from firearm bans on Capitol Hill, but it doesn't allow them to carry a gun in the chambers or other nearby areas. Some House Democrats wrote a letter recently asking Speaker Nancy Pelosi to repeal the 1967 rule, but they were unsuccessful. Friend NPR News, I'm
1: Nate Hedgie. Messaging service Slack, which pun intended. Has picked up much of the slack from out-of-office communications as millions of people work from home, wasn't working for a time today. The service now relied on by millions globally, including those of us here at NPR, suffered an outage on the first day back at work for most people after the New Year's holiday. It's the latest major glitch showing how disruptive technologies can be, with so many people working from home or taking classes online during the coronavirus pandemic. The outage, which began around 10 a.m. Eastern time, appeared mostly to be resolved By early afternoon today, crude oil futures prices moved lower as OPEC leaders failed to agree on whether to keep raising production quotas, sending discussions into a second day. Oil ended the session down 90 cents a barrel to close at 47.62 a barrel in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News.
0: Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, Showers are likely tonight before 10 p.m., then gradual clearing with a low around 33. Chance of precipitation is 60% with new rainfall amounts of less than one-tenth of an inch possible. Tuesday in the foothills will be sunny with a high near 52, and Tuesday night will be partly cloudy with a low around 36. In Sacramento tonight, there's a 20% chance of showers before 10 p.m. with a low around 42. On Tuesday, areas of fog are likely before 10 a.m., then gradually becoming mostly sunny with a high near 55, and Tuesday night will be mostly cloudy with a low around 39. Tonight in Truckee, there's a 30% chance of snow mainly before 9 p.m. with a low around 17. New snowfall amounts are expected to be less than 1 inch. On Tuesday in the Truckee region, skies should be sunny with a high near 42, and Tuesday night will have partly cloudy skies with a low around 21. And in Angels Camp tonight, showers are likely before 10 p.m. with a low around 37. Chance of precipitation is 70% with less than one-tenth of an inch possible. Tuesday in the Angel Camp region will be sunny with a high near 55 and partly cloudy skies overnight with a low around 39.
4: This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, welcome to KVMR, Steve. Well, thank you, and Happy New Year's once again. It is a new year, and finally, and I want us to try to move forward in a positive way. Uh, and uh, So here's a kind of an off-the-wall question, but how has the COVID pandemic provided Benefits to our community. Now that's a tough question. That's that's a nice spin you put on that.
5: You know, really good question. Do you remember? You know what it feels like when the power goes out, and and or your generator at the same time uh, is just getting ornery and won't start up. So those of us, and I know you have, you're on a well. That means there's no washing of the hands. There's no taking of the taking showers, and and then there's a real shortage of uh, toilet flushes. Well, you know. It can also happen, the same type of thing can also happen if, if you're not able to pay your water bill because the water, the utility gets turned off. Last year, there were a lot of people in that circumstance as a result of, of COVID. So what happened? Well, the COVID response was to mandate hundreds of min- different municipalities within California to go ahead and suspend their delinquent account shutoff programs and then uh, and, and reverse any current turnoffs of uh, of water, which was uh, quite different. We typically have never done that before. Now, there's a fellow, Dan McVeigh. He works as utility maintenance supervisor of the city of Pleasanton. He feels that uh, how he responded in the COVID response really is an acknowledgement that water really is a basic right. And um, he made made that point. It's and and he's thinking he was thinking that, you know, it's not a matter of creating a free service that he's viewing this at. He's he's looking at the actions of past human rights to water, and he's looking at, he was looking at the current water order of things and looked at how the decisions were made and felt like, you know, we're just kicking the can down the road. It's all temporary fixed stuff. So Uh, What he noticed is that even during the good times, you'll still have, you know, non-COVID times, you'll still have communities and individuals that don't have water. So his suggestion was maybe now we can look more seriously at the possibility to provide some sort of base level allotment for water to residential locations just for indoor water only and uh and then he put an exclamation point on that there there's got to be some common sense approaches for doing this. I mean obviously there's a financial component uh that would have to be dealt with, but there are also logistical and operational considerations, but but maybe the time is now and covid has allowed us to actually see this opportunity more clearly.
4: Well, okay. Uh That's a positive spin, Steve. Good job.
5: And of course, be careful out there in the meantime.
4: (laughs) Okay, so Cal. It seems apparent that California is getting hotter, drier, and more extreme, um, and more frequently hotter and drier. Uh, Any silver linings in that situation? Ah,
5: Yes. Well, if you were to ask a winemaker. They'd say, you betcha there is. The ag sector recognizes the alchemy of soil, climate, and landscape. Of course, climate means temperature and water, right? And, uh, and how all that creates health and uniqueness of a, of a wine. So everyone is recognizing that as climate is changing in the different geographic areas, the viticulture communities are paying attention to how their grapevines are responding, this. And what are the, they're asking these days, what are the physiological traits that would help a grape plant adapt to what is happening in California right now? So the, typically the vintners, they're looking at the right balance, right? If we want to simplify this, they're looking at the right balance between water and sugar in their grapevines. And the tendency of grapevine owners is to find heat and drought tolerant resistant vines. That's sort of the mission. Now they're recognizing that it's not just managing the canopy or shifting, you know, the timing on fruiting and and ripening, but it also includes the genetics, the physiology of the type of grapevine. And so there's a lot of work being done on this at this time. Now, if anybody listening wants to get a real earful explanation on this topic, why don't you go down there and visit some of our winemakers? We have a lot of them in Nevada City and Grass Valley. Ask them what's being done to help uh, our grapevines become more tolerant and tasty, you know, continue to taste wonderful.
4: So what do you think? Are we off to a good start this year?
5: Oh, absolutely. Look outside right now. Rain, rain, and I hear there's a lot of snow coming down up, up in the high elevations, so... You know we we are uh, we are receiving what we expect to receive lots of rain this winter. It started up finally. Uh, thank uh, thank God. Twenty twenty is over. Twenty twenty one is here before us, and um, we are off to a, a good start. We we you know we want to uh, recognize the water resources are delivered in a very uh, unpredictable fashion and not very consistent. So as a result of that, each of us needs to look at uh, maybe using our water in, in uh, unison or in, in, in step with the delivery of water, which when, it, when it's dry, when it's uh, low, not coming very often, we use less. And, and if we have plenty of water, then by golly, we're going to have big gardens. So uh, good luck to everybody out there. Happy New Year again. And we will continue to talk about water as the, day, as the year moves forward.
4: Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with our water guy on KVMR. You can email him with your questions at Baker at operationunite.co. <music>
0: An NPR investigation has found that pharmacists working for Walmart tried for years to raise the alarm about the company's sale of highly addictive opioids. Walmart says it broke no laws and acted responsibly. The company faces lawsuits, including a complaint by the Justice Department. Walmart has been an NPR underwriter, which we cover like any other company, and NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann has this story.
3: To understand the role pharmacists and pharmacy chains like Walmart played in the opioid crisis, it helps to look at one Walmart customer, a woman named Christina Dine. She was in her 20s when a doctor in Ohio prescribed her large doses of powerful opioids.
2: At the highest, I was prescribed 330 milligram oxycodone a day with 215 milligram oxycodone um, kind of thrown in there for a quote unquote breakthrough pain.
3: Dyne had been diagnosed with bursitis, painful but not the sort of ailment where a highly addictive narcotic is generally recommended. Under federal law, after a doctor writes a prescription, especially one like Dine's that poses a serious risk of addiction, the pharmacist is also required to play an important gatekeeper role. It's a big part of their job to make sure powerful drugs are only dispensed when there's a legitimate medical purpose. Dine says she had her opioid prescriptions filled repeatedly for two years at a number of pharmacies, including her local Walmart. No one warned her about the danger.
2: And I never once had a pharmacist or any other pharmacy staff question it, question me, ask me any questions
3: whatsoever. Dine became addicted to pain pills and later heroin. This was in 2012, and at first she didn't realize she was part of an opioid epidemic already killing tens of thousands of people a year. By the time Dine fell into addiction, Walmart was doing huge business, shipping hundreds of millions of opioid pills every year to its chain of pharmacies across the country. Ashwani Sheeran is a pharmacist who saw this happening in Walmart stores where he worked in rural Michigan. He says there were often lines of people when the store opened waiting to buy opioids. I see that patients of 15 to 20 are already lined up to get their prescriptions filled. Sheeran told NPR he saw things that scared him. People who looked healthy were getting a lot of pain pills. They were traveling hundreds of miles to fill their prescriptions at his Walmart store. When he tried to call doctors to find out what was happening, he often couldn't get them on the phone. He was so troubled, he sent warnings to Walmart's corporate headquarters in Arkansas. So I sent the email to Walmart executive levels and I explained them that there are large number of controlled substance and the narcotics were dispensed not for genuine purpose, which are for distribution on the street. Cheeran says nothing happened to fix the problem, and that made him angry. So he kept trying, warning his managers that Walmart pharmacies seemed to be feeding a black market for opioid pills. They told me, do not reach out to the DA or do not call the police. If you're going to do so, your employment going to be terminated immediately. Records show Sheeran did contact local police and the Drug Enforcement Administration. He was suspended by Walmart and later fired. He sued the company under a federal whistleblower statute, a case that's still pending. NPR tried to ask Walmart about this. The company declined repeated interview requests and didn't respond to a list of detailed questions. It turns out Sheeran wasn't the only pharmacist raising alarms. Internal company documents made public in lawsuits against Walmart show pharmacists all over the country kept warning company executives about opioids and about pill mill doctors sending patients to Walmart.
4: There was no oversight from up top about the over dispensing of controlled substances.
3: This is a pharmacist who worked for Walmart in the South who says he left a couple of years ago voluntarily to take another job. NPR agreed not to use his name because he fears a family member still employed by Walmart could face retribution. He says Walmart pharmacies kept doing business with doctors even when there were clear signs things weren't right.
4: They were primary care doctors. They weren't like pain management doctors. They weren't oncologists and they were prescribing large amounts of opiates.
3: Now, again, as part of their gatekeeper role, all pharmacists have the authority to reject suspicious prescriptions. And Walmart points out in public statements this does happen at its pharmacies. But as Walmart shipped and sold hundreds of millions of pills a year, industry experts and the pharmacists NPR interviewed said there was enormous pressure at Walmart to say yes to dispense opioid pills quickly.
4: You know, Walmart didn't make it so that it was easy for you to say no or to do the right
3: thing another thing we've learned from court documents filed in lawsuits against walmart is that pharmacists weren't the only ones raising alarms federal regulators also kept telling walmart its system for managing opioids and keeping patients safe wasn't good enough under pressure from the dea walmart signed an agreement way back in 2011 promising national reforms the pharmacists we talked to said things never improved Again, Walmart declined NPR's interview request, but the company has created a public campaign to explain its opioid practices, including this video posted last year on Walmart's website.
2: We all have a responsibility to dispense opioids appropriately. And so when somebody comes to our pharmacy and we're going to dispense them a medication, we're going to do it responsibly. We want to make sure that they're safe.
3: In legal filings, Walmart attorneys acknowledge the DEA warned the company about red flags and patterns of prescribing behavior that could mean opioid prescriptions were unsafe or illegal. Walmart says those advisories weren't legally binding and says government guidance on opioids was often vague, confusing and contradictory. The company also argues it was the government's job, not Walmart's, to crack down on dangerous pill mill doctors. These arguments will be tested in courts around the country as lawsuits against Walmart and other pharmacy chains move forward. People like Christina Dine will be watching. After filling her first prescription for oxycodone pills back in 2012, Dine says it took years to put her life back together.
2: I first got sober in 2015 after my daughter's father overdosed and died. I kind of went in and out. I struggled for a bit, but uh, I've been sober since
3: 2017. Dyne is doing better now, working as a recovery nurse, helping others with addiction. But more than 230,000 Americans have died from overdoses linked directly to prescription opioids. Brian Mann, NPR News.
2: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Grassroots groups are calling for justice for a native man who was tased by a National Park Service ranger in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The incident, recorded by the sister of Daryl House last week, shows House being tased by a park ranger at Petroglyph National Park. The Red Nation and Pueblo Action Alliance are calling for the termination of the ranger, seeking restitution and an apology to House and his sister. The groups held a prayer walk over the weekend to the national park, demanding justice. According to the Red Nation house, his sister and dog were hiking and offering prayers in the park when they say they went off the trail to avoid other hikers when the incident ensued. The nearly 4-minute, 30-second video of the incident showing House being tased went viral. The National Park Service released a longer 9-minute lapel video showing more of the confrontation while an investigation is underway. Petroglyph National Park, located on Tiwa Territory, is home of ancient rock art and is a spiritual and cultural place for Indigenous people. Members of the grassroots group say, Indigenous people have the right to practice their culture and spiritual ways on Indigenous land without the fear of repression, discrimination, or violence. Members of the Native American community of Greater Kansas City, demonstrated outside the Kansas City football team stadium during the last regular season game Sunday, calling for the team to change its name and for sports teams to end the use of Native American imagery. The group, not in our honor, includes students, educators, and leaders of Native organizations. Ed Smith, who works with the Kansas City Indian Center, was among the group.
5: Well, I think it's been pretty important to be out here and and show the people of Kansas City that that, uh, This issue matters, Um,
2: really, that we're out here and that we're committed to it. That it's just not a one-time thing and that we're not going to go away. The coalition has been hosting events outside the stadium during home games. Members of the 117th Congress were sworn in Sunday. Six indigenous members from both parties were among those to take the oath of office. From New Mexico, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Hawaii... Including New Mexico Congresswoman Deb Holland, who's being tapped by the Biden Harris transition team for Secretary of the Interior. Holland in a statement said top priorities are COVID-19 and recovery from the pandemic. Tribal communities have been hit hard by COVID-19. Economic recovery, healthcare, housing, education, sacred site protection, and many other Indian country issues are on the agenda for tribes seeking action as new and returning members of Congress get to work. The Coquell tribe is looking forward to opening a health clinic miles away from its headquarters to help American Indian and Alaska Native people. KLCC's Brian Bull has more.
6: The tribe's already developing a wellness center in Coos Bay, but citing the potlatch tradition of sharing resources, Coquell officials say they're starting a new one in Eugene, where an estimated 6,000 indigenous people live. The Coquell tribe's executive director, Mark Johnston, says the clinic will start in earnest before expanding to full services in April.
1: We will initially begin providing flu shot clinics and some COVID testing here by the end of the month. Our special message to all the American Indian Alaska Alaskan natives that live in Lane County and even outside of Lane County that we're looking forward to serving them and that we'll be open as soon as we can for them.
6: The new clinic will incorporate culturally sensitive elements in both its design and application of health and medicine. It'll be based in the North Eugene-Santa Clara area next to an existing dental clinic and physical therapy center. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull.
2: And I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
6: National Native News is produced by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation,
1: with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
6: Last week, KVMR listener Warren George Weiss Jr. sent us a script for a commentary he hoped we would run on KVMR. We are happy to do so. These views are his and not necessarily those of KVMR, our staff, board, volunteers, or contributors. I'm Steve Baker, and I'll read this, which was also published as the top article in the Sacramento Bees forum section on Sunday. Our family lost a loved one the day before Christmas Eve. Frank Vargas died of COVID-19 in Sutter General Hospital's intensive care unit on December 23rd, about 20 minutes after being taken off his ventilator. It was a cruel, meaningless death. Frank was a devoted grandfather. He spoiled his grandchildren mercilessly. They called his house Papa Land, and it was always a fight to get them to leave. He gave his little dog Harvey so many treats the poor dog could hardly walk. He was a kind, funny, hard-working man, the kind of person you called whenever there was an emergency because you could count on him being there for you. A 30-year railroad man and a Vietnam vet, he was 75, but he didn't look it. We thought he'd be around forever, but all it took was three weeks of COVID-19 to put him in the grave. We, his family, would like to make his death mean something, which is why I am speaking to you today. We, his family, are urging everyone out there listening to please wear masks and practice social distancing. To those of you who believe that COVID-19 is a hoax or, at best, exaggerated, you are wrong. It is real. We have talked to the overwhelmed nurses and doctors who did what they could to save our Frank. Please wear a mask and practice social distancing. To those of our leaders who say that COVID-19 is just a nasty bug, little more deadly than the flu, and who seem to think it will go away if we ignore it, and who never bother mentioning masks or social distancing when they speak, please stop. COVID-19 has now killed more Americans than World War II. Please use your position of power to urge the people you represent to wear masks and practice social distancing. Do what you can to make sure the people you serve are safe to those of you we see not wearing masks in stores and at social events please wear a mask our frank was extremely cautious he always wore a mask and rarely left the house but he did love to play the lotto and he went to the liquor store every day to buy a ticket and that may have been all it took another person in the store without a mask this virus is cruel it is pitiless It punishes almost everything we do that makes us human, because almost everything we do as humans involves being around other people we love and cherish. But it will take more lives in a cruel, awful way unless we, all of us, do what we can do to slow down its spread. Frank loved Frank Sinatra. When we drove home after watching him die, the first thing we heard on the radio was Sinatra singing, Have Yourself a Merry Christmas and we heard Sinatra sing these words. Through the years, we all will be together, if fates allow. Hang a shining star upon the highest bow, and have yourself a merry little Christmas now. We wondered if it was our Frank trying to tell us something. I wish I could play that song for you now, and I ask you again. Please take care of yourself. Please wear a mask so you can take care of others. The words of Warren George Weiss, Jr. Thank you for your commentary, sir.
0: That's our newscast for this evening. For their support, we'd like to thank Ben Franklin Crafts, locally owned and offering products to help organize home or office for arts and crafts, home decor, school projects, knitting. Ben Franklin Crafts on Sutton Way, Grass Valley, and Ben franklin craftscom And Circle's Wild and Scenic Film Festival, online January 14th through the 24th. A virtual experience this year with over 100 environmental and adventure films, filmmakers, activists, workshops, and more. Wildandscenicfilmfestival.org Coming up next, we bring you Disability Wrap and At 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions and KVMR's news team, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening.